Welcome back to E-Impulse, and thanks for joining us for our rebeat of Sold for Chrysler 300. You know, Sarah, this was our second episode ever, and it still remains my favorite. Yeah, this is the episode that I point new listeners to. It is such a powerful episode, and it was the inspiration for using stories to illustrate the science we're discussing. Yeah, I'm glad we're rebeating this episode from 2018 because we actually have some new evidence-based updates that we can discuss in the follow-up episode. Okay, so let's go back in time to our 2018 episode and then stay tuned for the next episode for those updates. We have the great pleasure of speaking with Annika Mack today. Annika is originally from Denver, Colorado, and as a teen, she herself survived the crime of human trafficking. She then showed incredible strength and courage by testifying against her trafficker, and he was convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Ms. Mack has overcome many obstacles. She's risen above them, and she's here today because she wants to help us learn how we, as members of our community, as physicians, how can we help create a loving and supportive community and help make victims of modern-day slavery free once and for all. So without further ado, Annika Mack. Hi, guys. So a little bit about my story specifically, because this is this is my where my expertise comes from. I grew up in a very abusive home. Uh, there was sexual abuse. There was physical abuse. There was emotional abuse. There was neglect. And these things really shaped my childhood and made me uh, become vulnerable to this crime. I was a runaway youth um, from 16 to 18. And um, sometimes that included being homeless. When I started to move to Las Vegas, Nevada. I was targeted by three different traffickers. I was walking around in the middle of the day at the wrong side of town. And because I didn't know the area, I I was then targeted by three different pimps. And when I was um, 18, I was just turning 18, I was deciding to leave Las Vegas, Nevada. I was uh, going to get on a Greyhound bus and go to uh, Ohio. The day before I was supposed to leave, I was visiting my dad for uh, what I thought was the last time. And when this happened, I went back to the bus to go back home that night to go to sleep. When I got to the bus stop, there was a car that had pulled up, and there was a young man and a young woman and asked me if I wanted to go hang out. And I thought it was my last time in Vegas, so I might as well do something fun. So that night, I, I went to their house. We watched movies. We drank a little bit and smoked a little weed. Nothing major, but I never knew that there was bad intentions for me by these people. I never assumed that they were traffickers. I thought they had normal jobs, and I thought it was relatively normal to hang out with these people just for a short period of time. I uh, told them I was leaving on a Greyhound bus the next day, and they asked me how I was getting to the, to the bus station. I said that I would have to take four local buses that morning to get to this, to this bus station and that I wasn't going to be able to get any sleep. They asked if I wanted to go pick up my stuff from my, my house and if I wanted to come back to their house to go to sleep for a little while so I could get some sleep before I leave. I got some sleep, and they said they would wake me up, and they didn't. An hour before my bus was supposed to leave, he was gone. He had left the house, and the girl that I was uh, trafficked with was in the home. And she continued to say, well, he's on his way home, he's getting gas, the Greyhound station is 10 minutes away. It's not very far. And because I didn't know where I was, I believed them. I missed my bus, and I was given an ultimatum that if I worked with them for two weeks, that I could leave with enough money to buy my bus ticket back and 
have a couple hundred dollars to leave with for food. And for me, I was not going home. I was not going back to my abusive home. I thought of things like shelters, and I thought of things like if I got a job tomorrow, would I get enough money to pay for an apartment in two weeks? And the answer was no. And so as he's telling me this spiel about how good I would have it, how he would buy me new clothes, and how I would be fed and and taken care of, I looked at him very blankly and said, it looks like you made me have to. After the two weeks were over, I asked him to leave, and I was not allowed to leave. I um, started having the manipulation and, and mind games that traffickers play. And as over time, mind games worked less on me, and so my trafficker got more and more violent as time went on. So at first it started off as, as just a beating with a belt on the butt, and by the time I left, um, I was being waterboarded, pistol-whipped, Russia roulette, and a lot of really, really, really aggressive things. I was sold to another trafficker about four days before I got out of trafficking. My trafficker had sold me because he knew what medical condition I was in. He knew I was close to dying. So he sold me to this other trafficker who did not know what condition I was in. I was sold for a Chrysler 300. That was my my dead body price. And I was there for four days, and this other trafficker called mine and said, I did not pay for a dead body. You need to come pick her up. Otherwise, I'm taking my car back. He picked me up, and I was able to convince him to take me to the hospital instead of the desert because that was a thought of his. I convinced him because I said I was going to connect with this other trafficker while in the hospital, which I knew was a lie, but it, it actually made him drive me there because he wanted this car so badly. He drove me about a mile away from the hospital, and I walked a mile to that hospital emergency department, and it was um, in the end of June, so it was about 108 degrees that day. I had um, 28 broken bones, one in my skull, four in my jaw, three in the vertebrae in my back, three in the vertebrae in my neck, 18 on my ribs, lacerations to my liver, my kidney, and my spleen. I was internally bleeding from my spleen. I had one-third of my blood because I had lost so much from the beatings. I had gangrene infection on my hand that needed to be amputated, um, so I have a missing finger. And I had gangrene infection on my butt that actually had, I had had to walk around with for two weeks. So my butt was actually falling out. It was about three hours from my bloodstream. And I was 90 pounds. So I was in severe condition and had 12 surgeries during my hospital stays. And I was hospitalized for a month. I was um, hospitalized for two weeks in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I was trafficked. And then I was transferred to UC Davis and Sacramento. Wow, Annika, that is such a powerful story. And I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I know that's not easy to talk about, but it does bring up a really key point for us in the emergency department. You have a lot of features that we can easily walk by as emergency medicine providers, right? Like we see kids that are runaway. We see kids that come in with a burn or certain injuries, and we can walk past that at that moment and miss an opportunity to intervene for somebody. And I think some of the key risk factors that you had in your story is um, that you were homeless, that you were a runaway, came from a dysfunctional family and actually had abuse inside of the home. There was some drug involvement, marijuana, obviously not that big of a deal, but another piece of the picture. And these are all things that we see commonly in the emergency department, and they're opportunities for us to ask those questions and start to screen for them. 
So when you presented to the emergency department, how did that part go? Walk us through your experience with the medical community. For starters, I walked in into this hospital in Las Vegas very sick, and the triage nurse was unaware of how physically bad it was. And I walked into the triage nurse, and she said, please sit down. And I said, well, you don't want me sitting down. And I said this because I had infection and blood coming from my butt, and she really did not want me to sit down. And she's very rude with me, and she goes, excuse me, sit down. And so that's my first experience walking into the hospital. The rest of that hospital stay in that hospital kind of followed. I was told to tell a fake story. I told this fake story. None of the healthcare professionals ever asked me about this story again. So nobody ever approached me about whether or not they thought that I was a human trafficking survivor. And at that point, they didn't. They thought I was just a, a, a very bad assault. I feel like medical education, residency education, does a decent job of showing us certain signs to look at in children who may have been abused. But we didn't receive a whole lot of education on human trafficking of young adults. I definitely don't feel like I am confident in recognizing the signs. And I, I can see how in a busy ER, it's easy to take someone's story and roll with it and not look deeper. I mean, it's kind of astounding in hindsight listening to your story and the extent of the injuries and, you know, kind of the physical state that you were in. It's sort of surprising to me that we didn't pick it up. But I know that we miss it. Yeah, a part of my heart understands that triage nurse and her response to the patient who isn't listening. But we as providers have a responsibility to move past ourselves and to ask why. Why is it that you couldn't sit down? Tell us, Annika, how can we create a safe place for someone like you who's been traumatized to tell their whole story? For me, um, during the first two weeks of my hospitalization, I felt that I was a number that the nursing staff and physicians had to get through. So there was never any discussion on how I felt. I, I was never informed about my surgeries. Actually, my family was contacted about what surgeries I should have, even though I was 18. And that's another big part is I didn't have trust with, with my healthcare professionals because they were contacting my family. And a lot of uh, people that have been human trafficked have dysfunctional families. That's just a very large portion. This is an opportunity for you to make rapport and connect with, with victims. So that way, if they're not ready to get out, they know a safe, healthy place to come back to. They know exactly who they can talk to. And because I didn't have any trust with any of my healthcare professionals in this first hospital, I um, wasn't feeling comfortable enough to talk to anyone. Sounds like you also felt like a lot of your choices were taken away from you. Your autonomy was taken away from you. Yes. I mean, uh, during my trafficking, I wasn't allowed to, um, to pick what I wanted to wear. I wasn't allowed to pick what I was going to have for dinner or if I was going to eat or when I was going to wake up or go to sleep. There was a good four weeks of time where I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom when I wanted to go to the bathroom. I had to get permission to go to the bathroom. And during my hospitalization, that was something that continued. I wasn't able to go to the bathroom on my own. So um, that, was, that was very hard for me to deal with. And I actually did try and get out of bed quite a few times at this hospital and go to the bathroom by myself. But um, at this hospital, I was able to choose what I wanted to eat. 
And for five days, they were, my family, the nurses, why don't we order something other than chicken nuggets? Nope, I want chicken nuggets. And the nurses just agreed, okay, she wants chicken nuggets. And、um, that was giving me my first opportunity to have a choice in what I wanted and needed. I thought another good point that I learned, we actually had a workshop, and one of the things that I thought was really important that came out of that is recognizing that the companion may be there as a best friend. So it may not be, you know, what we sort of stereotypically assume, and like, and you know, an older male, somebody who looks like a pimp, we, you know,、yeah. might not be that. It might actually be <laughs> a, you know, a best, a, a, like a quote,、peer. best friend, a peer,、yeah. and recognizing that even if the patient is sort of saying, "Oh no, I want them to stay in the room," or、yeah. "This is, you know, you know, the, 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 I'm safe with them," that may not be the case. And so the importance of really getting them alone. I think that's honestly a more common. Situation than the traffickers coming in because the traffickers, in my experience, like to walk the walk, not necessarily talk the talk when not dealing with the girls because they have a certain level of power control over the girls. So they'll they'll walk the walk there, but when it comes to the outside world, my trafficker dropped me off in a neighborhood down the street so that way he could say, "Wait five minutes, I'm gonna leave because I don't want to be looking like an abuser." And so usually sending girls in to do the dirty work is more common. They usually have girls、um, steal things or take the fall for the things they should be taking the fall for. They know their victims are going to go to jail for prostitution instead of them having to go to jail for trafficking. So,、uh, Anika, I have one more question.、Um, during this experience that you're telling us about, when did you finally divulge to the medical providers that you were a victim of human trafficking? How did that come about? So the medical professionals never knew that I was a human trafficking survivor. They never actually asked me any questions about that the entire、um, hospital stay. I will say there was one nurse who is the reason I speak with Dignity Health. Is the reason that I I do this work with hospitals specifically. And her name was Bridget, and she was the ICU here at UC Davis. And every time she would come on shift, she would make sure that she was my nurse. She always came in the room. And she would ask me how my day was, and whether that was a long-winded answer or oh, I'm fine. She always wanted to know more. She made me feel cared for, and she I spent a couple lunches with me that made me feel like I was important to her. That she wanted to hear what I had to say, and there was a couple times where、um, I was experiencing trauma from a、uh, plastic surgeon、uh, resident who was doing rounds with me, and she stepped in. And she became that、um, helpful person, and and she stood up for me and made me feel cared about, and she made me feel safe with this、um, aggressive male who was trying to do his runs. So, how did you eventually break this cycle then? So, because of my physical state,、uh, police were involved. I had three different police officers visit my room in Las Vegas. In my hospitalization, there was two more negative police officers that came in the room. And by the time the vice unit, which is a specific unit that works on、um, human trafficking cases, had came around, I I was shut down. I was、um, not willing to speak with this this detective. And for five weeks, she called me about twice a week. And at first, it was just, "How's your healthcare doing? How are you physically doing?" And, "Oh, you're getting you're getting let out of the hospital. Is there anything you need?" She sent me gift cards so I can go buy clothes. She、um, built rapport with me for five plus weeks, and I went to my first counseling session actually at Weave, which is a service here in Sacramento. 
And the therapist at the end of the session had showed me this power control wheel. And you could Google it, just human trafficking wheel. And it shows the different ways traffickers use power control over these victims. And I still have this copy where I highlighted everything that he did to me. And I realized that I was a victim and that he had had preyed on me. And that was really when I understood. And once that happened, um, I was uh, trafficked with this other woman, and she was called a bottom. And a bottom is a girl who um, uses, is kind of like an assistant to a trafficker. They're usually the longest-term victim. They uh, train new victims. They um, collect money and work on transportation. She was pregnant with this child, which is really common with um, victims of human trafficking. He was a third-generation trafficker, so his grandfather did it, his dad did it, his uncles, his cousins. And because of this, if it was a boy, the job of this newborn child would have been to be a trafficker. And if it was a girl, she was supposed to have my job. This made me um, feel very guilty for leaving that possible child in, in, in whatever situation and I decided to uh, go forward and testify and went to court against my trafficker. Pulse check. So I want to summarize what Annika has shared with us today. We as providers need to be open. We need to ask why. We need to move past our own perception of a difficult patient. We need to ask the patient alone. We need to consider screening for human trafficking and those patients who come in with trauma, with assault sexually transmitted infections, homeless, runaways, when they come in intoxicated, or anyone whose story just doesn't add up. And to create that safe environment, we need to look at ourselves. Today we have one of our colleagues, Dr. Bryn Muma. She's an assistant professor here at UC Davis, and while she actually spends most of her time uh, doing research in cardiac arrest, she also has mentored multiple emergency medicine residents who have done projects on human trafficking in the emergency department. So, uh, Bryn, can you tell us about the research that you've been doing on human trafficking? Our initial project was actually a research study. This was um, a little bit complicated because it meant that we had to consent patients before asking them our screening questions, but we were able to do it. Our goals in this early study were really just to evaluate the feasibility of screening in the emergency department. Would we even be able to identify victims in the emergency department? We also wanted to identify the most effective questions for screening. So most of the published resources on screening are designed to be done in a clinic setting and include, you know, a 30-minute interview with 100 questions. And we, we all know that we just don't have time for that in the emergency department. And then finally, we wanted to compare the effectiveness of these screening questions to physician gestalt. Are physicians already recognizing that these patients are at risk for trafficking, but just not acting on it? In this first phase, we screened 143 women aged 18 to 40 um, with 14 screening questions. 39 of those 143 screened positive, and 10 were current or prior victims of sex trafficking. So that's, that's 6%. Yes. So much higher than we expected. We were hoping that we would just be able to identify and help one or two victims just to show that it was possible. And we found 10. Some were former victims who were now survivors, so didn't really need our resources, but we're still very appreciative of the just us asking and being willing to help them. Can you tell us what some of those screening questions were? One question that everybody answered yes to, and that was, were you or anyone you work with ever beaten, hit, yelled at, raped, threatened, or made to feel physical pain for working slowly or trying to leave? One of the things that really interests me with what you were looking at with this study is 
physician perception? Like, did we pick this up as physicians on those people that you identified? Can you talk to us a little bit about that piece of it? Yeah. So the short answer is no. Um, We didn't pick it up. The physicians picked up about four out of the 10 women. And that's based on physician suspicion. Just physician concern. And they could sort of take anything they wanted into account. We just asked them one simple question. It's like, are you concerned about human trafficking in this patient? Rarely were physicians concerned. And I think that really highlights the need for increased awareness. This is something um, I had very little, if any, information about human trafficking in my own training. And I think this really highlights the need for increased awareness among physicians and nurses in our emergency department. How do you feel what you've learned from from your research? Has it changed how you practice now? Has it changed how you teach your residents to practice? In terms of how it's changed my care, I think I try to be much more aware of human trafficking as a possibility in my patients. I don't necessarily formally screen every single patient I see, but when they come in with certain chief complaints, if there are elements of their story that aren't adding up, if they're you know, in the family, in the room with a friend or a family member who seems to be controlling or overbearing. Those are times when I isolate the patient. A lot of times they're coming in for an abdominal pain or a gynecologic-related complaint. So I'll take them into our pelvic exam room, which is a procedure room um, that actually has a, a door that closes. A lot of our rooms have curtains, but I feel like if I take them into that room, the doors actually close. They know that they have privacy, and I'll sort of Start with my normal, my normal sexual history, my normal social history, and then I just kind of move into questions more specifically directed at trafficking. So in that note, Julia, you um, deal with this in the PEDS ED. So how do you approach this with pediatric patients? Yeah, it is a little bit different, but it's a lot of the same principles. And the average entry age into human trafficking is 12 to 16, depending on what study is. Um, And so it is something that should be on our radar. We wish that it wasn't, but it is something that should be on our radar. So I feel like as providers, medical physicians and providers, we're asked to screen for everything. So I don't propose screening shotgun. I propose screening a few high-risk patients. And this is based off of data out of Atlanta by Jordan Greenbaum. And she went through and compared between survivors of child sexual abuse versus um, CSEC or commercial sexual exploitation of children. And she found high-risk chief complaints. So this is where your money's at, right? Vaginal or penile discharge, if they're there for request for sexually transmitted infection testing or pregnancy testing, intoxication, ingestion, suicide attempt or ideation, acute sexual assault, runaways, or concern for inflicted injury. And I would add to that what I call the heebie-jeebie factor. Any patient that you're like, something's not right in that room, that's who I'm going to screen. And I kind of think it's natural anyways, because you're already in that mode when you go into the runaway or you're in for your um, sexual assault or if you're in talking about suicide, you're kind of going through those heads exams that we all learned during medical school, right? So adding on a question or two is not that big of a burden. The question that I use most frequently is to say sometimes kids are in a position where they really need money or they need drugs, food, a place to stay. They feel that they have no option except to exchange sex or some sort of sex activity for the money or other thing that they need. Have you ever had to exchange sex for money, food, shelter, or something else you wanted? Now, I recognize when you do identify it, this can be a major time suck. It can totally drastically change your shift. But I would suggest that for all of the colds, for all of the viral illnesses, for all the medication refills that we see that probably aren't drastically changing this patient's life, 
this one, if we can identify a victim and help them get on a safer pathway, we can really make a difference in this patient's life. Just one other important point that is that I think if we don't really take the time to do, like Nick talked about, going into the room, sitting down, really building a rapport with these patients, it's very difficult for them to be labeled as difficult patients and really put walls up and then we completely isolate them. You know, with these patients who I just feel like I'm having a hard time connecting with, really try to figure out why we're having a hard time connecting with them. Is there a reason they have those walls up and what can we do to overcome them? Bryn, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's a really important study, uh, really important work, and um, thank you for sharing it with us. We've talked a lot today about creating a safe environment and actually asking these questions of our patients. To help us out with that today, we have Rachel Robitz. Rachel is a new hire at UC Davis. She just finished her residency at UCSD in combined family medicine and psychiatry. And Rachel chose this residency track specifically to advocate for victims of human trafficking. So we're really lucky to have Rachel here to fill this need in our system. Rachel, when we talk about creating a safe place, I often hear the phrase trauma-informed care. What exactly is that? Trauma-informed care, it's not um, a treatment protocol. It's not a treatment modality. It's really a way of thinking about providing care for patients, about really creating systems that recognizes the trauma that some of the individuals that we work with have experienced, recognizes that there's potentially trauma that we as providers have experienced, recognizes the impacts of trauma, and recognizes how the trauma we've experienced affects our day-to-day interactions, and really tries to create a system as well as a way of interacting that understands the impacts of trauma and takes those into consideration and, and affects the way we interact. I've done a little bit of research um, looking at some trafficking survivors and what they want in care. And that non-judgmental piece um, and that not pushing them too fast piece are themes that keep coming up. And so if someone doesn't want to talk to me about their trafficking, that's okay. I just let them know that I'm available when they are ready to talk. One of the examples that I commonly give when I talk about this subject is a, a young woman who I once worked with. She was pretty upset. um, And I think she was cursing and she was just angry and unhappy. And at that point, um, I didn't have my trauma-informed lens on. And so she just looked like an angry patient who was hard to deal with. A few years later, I was asked to do an evaluation on a human trafficking patient. And I went to see the patient. And it turns out um, she recognized me. I recognized her. It was that same woman that I'd taken care of years before and hadn't realized um, that she'd been a trafficking survivor. At that point, I realized the error in how I'd been thinking previously about her care and, and was able to see that, you know, when I looked at her through the, the lens of the trauma that she'd experienced, it was easy to have more compassion for her. It was easier to deal with some of the difficult behaviors that she'd had at the time. And it, it just, it completely changed our interaction. I think some of these difficult behaviors that we see in patients in the emergency department Um, cursing, refusing medications, refusing treatment, even violence of some way or another. While we see that as difficult behaviors, for them, these are survival skills. This is how they've been able to protect themselves out on the streets, maybe not in a healthy way or how, you know, you or I were taught by our parents to survive and to ward off bad things. But these are the skills that they have, and those can sometimes be barriers to us as providers. And I think the first step is recognizing that in trauma-informed care. 
that not everybody presents in the same way or in a linear, simple, clean way like we would like them to. Do you have any suggestions for how we might approach it in the ER in a limited time situation? You know, this is something I commonly hear from physicians because we are trained to to fix things, to figure out what the problem is and to solve it. And so it's really uncomfortable to, for us to sit with this. The approach that I've taken when I have someone who, for example, comes in with a sore throat to my primary care clinic um, that I've taken to planting the seed is I'll, I'll normalize it. If I have some kind of a red flag behavior and I'll say, you know, I know that sometimes this is happening to other women. Um, is this something that's happened to you? And if they say no, that's it. If they say, yeah, then, you know, we we might have it. And, and I let them know that I'm asking this question because I have resources that I want to be able to provide. Being compassionate and being there is enough. And if you kind of create that environment where they feel that the emergency room is a safe space, then the next moment when they're really in trouble, they'll come back. Lastly, you know, with child welfare, you don't need to have evidence of trafficking. You are not a detective. That is, As a physician, that's not our job. Our job is only to report if we have suspicion. Just call child welfare um, and let them know, and, and they should take a report. And then that will be used by them, along with reports from other social service agencies, to help the kid. I really like what you mentioned about people coming back at a later time. And I think that's sometimes hard for us in the ER because we feel like we're seeing this person for one visit. And like you said, we want to fix it. But I think that's a really important point, that it might not be this time, it might not be next time, it might be six months down the road that they you know, show back up. And if they feel that that's a safe space, then they may actually seek help at that time. Okay, so Rachel, once you've created that safe environment and you've identified a potential uh, victim, uh, what are the next steps that you take in the adult population? And Julia, uh, how is that different in children? Yeah, so one of the, the very first steps that I take um, after I've identified someone is to kind of see where they're at and whether or not they, where they're at kind of as far as their readiness to leave the life. If they do tell me that they're ready to leave the life, then I think about wrapping them with resources. And so I'd recommend that um, you get to know your local resources um, so that you can appropriately refer. But if you don't know where to start and you're unaware of what some of your local resources are, you could call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. The phone number is 1-888-373-7888. This is a national line that then pings back to your local jurisdiction, and they can help connect you to resources. Um, They can also help contact law enforcement if that's appropriate. This is a useful number for providers, but it's also a a number that can be given to victims. Um, You just have to be aware that when you're giving victims resources, if you're handing them a piece of paper or something that their trafficker could see, that could put them at potential increased risk. And so they know their safety far better than you know their safety. So asking them the best way, the safest way to provide them resources and then going about it in that way. It's a little bit different in the pediatric emergency department, some of the same principles, and we run into some of the same things where people don't identify themselves as victims or even think of themselves as victims. But in the United States, we're all mandated reporters of child physical and sexual abuse. And so if you have a child that you're concerned is being sexually abused or having sex with an older person or is being physically abused, you can't ignore it and wait until they're ready. Sometimes this will have varying outcomes, but you have to be able to go and tell somebody. And each area has a slightly different protocol, but CPS is probably a safe spot to start. If you don't know who your local resource is, sometimes it's law enforcement or FBI, and sometimes it's CPS. But CPS is one, if you had one phone call to make, 
CPS would be it. And they will help to get it out to everybody else. We covered a lot today on a heavy but crucial topic. So start to think about it with high-risk patients like Annika, suicide, mental health visits, homeless runaways, substance abuse, ingestion, abuse visits. We will never know if we don't create a safe place and ask. Bryn pointed out that the best way they found to screen adults was to ask. And the question is, were you or anyone you worked with ever beaten, hit, yelled at, raped, threatened, or made to feel physical pain for working slowly or trying to leave? And Julia said her favorite question is worded something like this. Sometimes kids are in a position where they really need money or they need drugs or they need food or a place to stay. They feel they have no option except to exchange sex or some sort of sex activity for money or for other things they need. Have you ever had to exchange sex for money, food, shelter, or something else you wanted? I think that's a great way to ask it. Rachel pointed out that when we identify potential victims, if they are a minor, start with CPS. And if they're an adult, start to introduce local resources if they're ready to call law enforcement. So I hope you got something out of this today. I know I did. Remember, if you can identify and help even one person, you are making a difference. For more information and links to things we've talked about today, check out our website, ucdavisem.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. A big thank you to our department, UC Davis Emergency Medicine, for making all of this possible. Also to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions. And we'll see you again soon.